The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. In the book of Daniel, the first chapter, we read, beginning in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. What we're reading about here is the beginning of what we know as the Babylonian captivity. Now, up until the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the Babylonian captivity was the most traumatic event in the collective consciousness of the children of Israel, as I said, up until the time of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in A.D. 70. Prior to that time, the nation of Israel had enjoyed a few uh, generations of, of unity as a kingdom. The, king, the first king of the unified kingdom was Saul, the second king was David, and the third king was Solomon. After Solomon, his, under his son Rehoboam, the kingdom split into the northern and the southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel or Ephraim. And, and the southern kingdom, made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, was called Judah primarily throughout 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. You can read about all those different kings. In the, in the northern kingdom, they never had a good king. In the northern kingdom, they all were considered wicked and doing evil in the sight of the Lord. In the southern kingdom, they had some good kings, they had some mediocre kings, and they had some very wicked kings. Yesterday at uh, Macedonia Church over in Mississippi where I was, I, I heard an outstanding sermon by Elder Ben Winslet about Manasseh, who was the wickedest of the wicked kings of, of the southern kingdom. Uh, Manasseh, who was... Uh, uh, who, who, who made his children, he sacrificed his children to the gods of, of, of Canaan, to the god Molech, that, that, that fire god over there, Baal, that, that, that was so wicked. And, and he caused uh, the children of, uh, of many of the children of Israel to pass through the fire, which is a euphemism for saying he burned them in the fire in sacrifice to these gods. And he did so, he even, <laughs> I don't want to get off on this this morning, but let me just say, I can't even imagine, I don't even want to imagine Brother Mackey's face if he walked into this sanctuary one Sunday morning and I had set up a big old fat idol to Baal right here in front of the pulpit. Uh, I don't know that Brother Mackey's heart would hold out or Aunt Lorraine's either, I'm not sure. I mean, that, but that's what, that's what Manasseh did. Manasseh set up an idol to the wicked gods of Canaan right there in the temple. And, and he, he, he shut down the temple worship. It was horrible what he did. And, and, and we're told at the end of the book of 2 Kings that Manasseh is the reason. He was the straw that broke the camel's back. And, and you know, all up to that time, God said, repent or I'm going to bring judgment. Repent or I'm going to bring judgment. And ultimately, he said, no more because of Manasseh. We, there was the best king besides David came along the scene after Manasseh. Josiah, he was a great king. He was one of the best uh, right up there with David, but even that was not enough to turn back the judgment of God. And, and ultimately, God brought judgment upon the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah there by carrying, uh, bringing the Babylonians upon them, and the Babylonians took them captive, and that's what we read about right here. By the way, 
just as a little aside, if you read about Manasseh in the book of 2 Kings, you'll come away with a distinct feeling that Manasseh was a reprobate and not a child of God. But if you go over to the book of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles tells us a little bit more about Manasseh. And we find in 2 Chronicles that it's apparent that Manasseh was a child of God. That we sing that song that that sacred blood from flood from Jesus' veins uh, is, is sufficient to take away a Mary's or Manasseh's stains or sins more vile than they. You know, we believe in grace here at this church. We believe in sovereign grace here at this church. We believe that the grace of God is sufficient to take away the sins of every single one of his elect children. Every single one, without exception, no matter how wicked they live, no matter how wicked they do. Now that doesn't excuse us from living righteously. In fact, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're ordained unto good works that we should walk in them. Now notice it didn't say you shall walk in them. If it said that, then that'd be different. That'd make God responsible for making you walk right. But beloved, you're responsible for living right. You're responsible for the way you live. As we're going to see in this message this morning. It's not up to us to get ourselves to heaven. We can't do that. There's no good works. There's not enough we could do. All our righteousnesses, we're told in Isaiah chapter 64, every single one of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and indeed all of them massed together are as filthy rags. <laughs> what happens when you get an old dirty rag and you lay it in the corner, you know? And then, then you put another dirty rag on top of it. Then you put another one on top of it. And pretty soon you have a pile of dirty rags. You know, when you go to God and say, Lord, I know that uh, uh, you said this, but I've done so many righteous deeds. I want to lay them on the altar here and let that be how I get to heaven. <laughs> you know what you've just laid on the altar? You've laid a pile of filthy rags on the altar. <laughs> the righteousnesses that you do and that I do are all tainted by sin. Now, look, I'm not saying you can't do good works. I've done some good things in my life. I've given to charity. I've, taken, I've helped others. And I'm not saying that to boast on myself. I'm telling you that because I also know that in the midst of that, Paul said, when I, he said, every time I do good, sin is present with me. You know, you know my biggest sin when it comes to doing good works? I want you all to know about it. I want you to know. I want you to pat me on the back, you know. I want to be sure, you know, I'll act like, I mean, look. I go confess it again. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I need, I'm gonna, we're going to have a day. I know we're not Catholic, but we're going to have a day where I'm going to march every one of you up here and make y'all confess, all right? Because I have to do it all the time. So, so I may act like I don't want, I may act all humble and all, you know, meek about it, but really deep down in my heart of hearts, I crave the attention and the praise. And I want you to know how good a guy I am, you see? You know what that is? That's pride. That's self-focus. That's sin. <laughs> Every single decision I make is tainted by the sin of Adam. Because I, I live in a sin-cursed world, and I am a sinner, you see. And so all the filthy rags that I could pile up before God would be nothing in his sight but filthy rags. And we'll move on from that. But uh, Manasseh, we, as I said, we believe in grace that's sufficient to save even a Manasseh. And it did it, okay? But, but regardless of the eternal salvation of God's children, there are timely consequences to our actions. And one of the consequences to Manasseh's actions was that he was the straw that broke the camel's back as to the chastening of God upon his people. And we just read about here that in the reign of Jehoiakim, 
Nebuchadnezzar came and he took the nation of Judah captive. Now, what he did is he transported most all of the people of Judah from where they lived in Jerusalem, which was the promised land, the place where God had chosen to put his people and to put his blessings and favor upon. He destroyed the temple, which was the, the, the uh, place of public worship that God had chosen to put his favor upon. And he destroyed all of those beautiful buildings over there, and he took them away to a pagan and an ungodly and a foreign land. And this, this morning, I want us to ask the question, how can you live a faithful life in a foreign land? How can you do that? It would seem hopeless, would it not? I mean, think about if someone came in and, you know, I've lived in Zion all my life. <laughs> Some of you have as well. Some of you have moved around, but, 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 but many of you have lived in one place all of your life. What if, what if a, a nation of people an army of people came in and uprooted you and took you to a place where they didn't speak English. They didn't worship in the way we worship. They actually worship pagan gods. I would just become despondent, I think, and I think I'd want to give up. But you know, there were four Hebrew children that are primarily focused upon in this book that didn't give up. They didn't quit. They didn't lay down and say it's hopeless and God, there's no hope for us. There's no uh, no point in serving you anymore. And these, of course, were Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we read here in the, in the book of uh, Daniel, the first chapter, where we left off, beginning in verse 3, that the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom there was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful, in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. So here we have a, a group of the, the exiles that were brought out of the group of the exiles. In other words, there were people who were exiled into Babylon. They were carried captive and they were just dispersed as servants and, and, and exiles among the people of Babylon. But here we have a, a, a sort of an elite group, if you will, a, a group of young men that, he want, that the king wanted for his own personal servants. So they were actually in a worse position than those that had been just left alone out in the masses. Because these, they had to have a certain type of education. They had a certain type of, of diet. They had certain things that happened to them that were more corruptible or more uh, potentially corrupting than happened to those that were out in the exile. So let's talk about that for a minute, about these who lived in Babylon, these exiles and let me just say this before we go any further. We sang that song earlier about Babylon. This is literal Babylon. But Babylon, over in the book of Revelation in particular, is mentioned as a, an example, as a type of the world system of wickedness that's out there. Beloved, I think you and I can agree that we are living in a spiritual Babylon today. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to remain faithful? Because you see, as now, as then, there was a conspiracy to corrupt the children of God. Notice what they did first. They separated them from their godly influences. 
Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 14 says, Where no counsel is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Young people, older people as well, but especially you young people, make sure that your circle of influence is filled with godly counselors. That doesn't mean you have to break off friendships with everyone in the world. We live in the world, and there are friends out there that aren't necessarily focused on the things of the kingdom of God. But make sure that your circle of close counselors is filled with people who have the proper focus. If Daniel and Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego had all decided, well, I'm going to make friends of all these Babylonians and I'm going to listen to what they say, then we wouldn't be reading about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. We'd be reading about somebody else. But make sure the circle of your influence includes people with a vision for the kingdom of God. Again, I'm not saying build yourself a, 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 a tent city over here and put walls up and, st and keep the world. You can't keep the world out. You live in the world. You can't, you, the, Paul said the only way to get away from all of the sinners in the world is to go out of the world. <laughs> and praise God, God's going to take care of that one day. He's going to get us out of here, okay? But, but he says, don't, you know, where there is no counsel, the people fall, and those counselors are to be godly counselors. Hey, the first set of counselors, young folks, that you've got are your parents. So guess what, parents? That puts a big burden on us to be the right kind of counselors, doesn't it? We need to be teaching our children about the troubles out there in the world. And then there's the, the counsel that you find in the kingdom of God, in the church of the living God. There's a reason God built the church. There's a reason he left it to us. He knew we would need it. Daniel Boone, the series was one of my favorite series when I was coming up. Daniel Boone was a great series. And at least once or twice a week on that, on that show, the theme of the show, was the plot was that the Indians had arisen in war and were out to kill all the settlers. And the, the word would go out among the settlement, you got to get in the fort, the Indians are rising. And without fail, some obstinate farmer over here would just sit over there by himself and say, I'm not going anywhere. This is my land. I'm, you know. And then the rest of the show was about Daniel Boone having to go out and having to, having to save that farmer <laughs> and get him in the fort. You know? And because, you know, Daniel Boone could do that. Daniel Boone could live outside the fort. But I want to say to you this morning, as I've said before, you're no Daniel Boone, okay? You need to be in the fort. Now, you can get off by yourself if you want to. You can become that person that's obstinate out there, so I can worship God wherever I am. You can worship God wherever you are, but you can't worship Him as well as you can worship Him in the church. <laughs> get in the church. Get in the fort. We're told in uh, Psalm 48 that the, the city of Zion, which is a type of the church of the living God, has towers and bulwarks and palaces, and those towers extend your vision to where you can see the enemy coming. It gives you a view of the future. Those bulwarks, those walls protect you from the influences that otherwise would, would try to slay you. And the palace, oh, the palace of Zion. The palace is the place where the king and his children can rest and can get away from those bad influences and wicked influences of the world. They can feed, they can dine. They can be together in peace and safety, you see. We're no Daniel Boone. They're, they're, you know, we, we don't even need to try. <laughs> Just get in the fort, you see. But the conspiracy here to corrupt them involves separating them from godly influences. They, Ashpenaz here was the master of the eunuchs. Eunuchs were employed in the ancient Near East as guards and servants. 
Primarily, I guess the idea was they couldn't bear children, so they wouldn't be tempted to seize power and start a dynasty. They also guarded the harem of the king and, uh, and were thought to be safe. In that. And he took the best of the children of Israel. He took those who were physically and intellectually and socially adept, and he took them into the place uh, where he could tr- uh, separated them from their, their families, their parents, their, their other godly influences, and put them among the rest of the young men in order that they might train them to be good Babylonians. Can you imagine the fear and the trepidation, the intimidation that they would have experienced? Because these are young men. These are like, we don't know exact ages, but I would estimate, and the estimates I've seen are that Daniel was probably around 15 years old when this happened. So 15 to 20 years old, maybe a little younger, maybe a little older, but he was brought in and separated from godly influences. And then they instructed them in their ungodly ideologies. Notice what it says. It says in verse 4, the very end of that verse, that whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. They brought them in to teach them the lore of Babylon. Now the Babylonians were great mathematicians. They were great architects and businessmen. But they also were rooted deeply in pagan theology. All of their learning, all of their teaching was mixed right up with the paganism of the day. Now, now again, let me just stop and ask you a question. Does that remind you of anything you know about in our country today? What about our universities? What about our colleges? What about our institutions of, quote, higher learning that I believe are institutions of lower learning today? (laughs) They, they, it's all mixed. You can't go to a, 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 a mainstream university today uh, without being assaulted by the philosophies of humanism, which is the modern day paganism. Evolution. And worse now, <laughs> uh, gender fluidity, whatever in the world that means. <laughs> My goodness. I'll come back to that in a minute. But, but there... Our children are being taught good things, you know, engineering, business, and all, but it's all mixed in together with this pagan and humanistic ideology. They even, teach, they even taught them the language of Babylon. <laughs> you know what, I, I know every generation has this struggle. You know, I said things that my daddy uh, didn't, didn't understand. You know, I had phrases that came about, and I'm sure he had phrases that his daddy and mama didn't understand but i'm gonna tell you something the phrases and language i hear now are so foreign to me that i can't even fathom what they mean they start saying i can't even i'm not even gonna go there i'd mess it up trying to say what the languages are i don't there's so much talk out there there's 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 wokeness there's uh there's all kinds of other uh, terminology that's used out there It's, it's a language I don't even understand the language of the world. And I'm not just talking about cursing. That's bad enough. We need to avoid that. I've told you all this before. I've, I've struggled with that through my life. When I was a young man and I could hang in there with the best of them, and I'm not bragging on that. I'm saying that's a bad thing. The Lord has, has, has delivered me from that. Although it, whenever you've had a sin in your life that was habitual and, and afflicted you, even as a young man, it continues to be a struggle throughout your life. But I'm telling you, I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about the very way we think and talk about things 
is changing today. That's what they did to these young men. They instructed them in their ungodly ideologies. Paul the Apostle says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, Beware, (laughs) beware. You know, that's what I would tell you all, especially you young folks, beware. Beware, lest any man spoil you. That means, that's, that's that's like an army coming in and winning the battle and taking all your stuff. You know, we don't believe that the devil is able to take any one of God's children away from him in an eternal sense. God loved his people before the foundation of the world. He purposed their salvation and he made it certain on the cross and he quickens those and he makes them alive and they will be with him in heaven one day. But the devil, we're told, is like a roaring lion. He's out there seeking whom he may devour. Not devour for hell, but he can cause your life to be a hell on earth. He can devour you. You can be spoiled or else Paul wouldn't have told us to be careful. He said, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. How do you avoid that? We're going to see in a minute. You've got to be prepared. You've got to be prepared. We'll come back to that. Notice then also what happened. They assimilated them into their ungodly society. Now, we've already read verse 4, but look at verse 5. The king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Then he goes on to tell us that among these children, these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. Notice what they're doing here. They tried to assimilate them into their ungodly society. They wanted them to look and act just like all other Babylonians. Beloved, that's what the world wants of you today. If you'll just go along to get along, you won't have too many problems in life. You'll get along with most everybody. If you'll just keep your mouth shut and just do what they do and mimic them, you'll be okay as far as the world's concerned. But that's what they wanted here of these children of Israel. Now, I don't want to get too graphic, but I want you to understand something here about these four children of Israel. They changed them physically. They made them eunuchs. I think that's clear from the context. And these were young men at the time. As I said, I don't know how old they were, probably 15 years old, maybe a little older, maybe a little younger. But they changed them physically to make them eunuchs. And, and remember that in Israel, it was a big deal to have children. It was a big deal to be the head of a family and to have, to have uh, children that would carry on your name. Would it not have been so tempting when this happened to these children, these four children of Israel, for them to just say, you know, I just give up. I can't fulfill my position as the father of a Hebrew family. I can't. It would have been so tempting to alter their view of family. I know that's what I've been taught, but I guess it's old fogey to be Hebrew. I'm just going to give up, and I'm going to move on, and I'm going to quit serving God. Now, this is a little bit inapposite, but, but I want you to think about something that's happening in the world today. You know what the world's teaching us today? It doesn't matter what gender 
you were born as. You can just change yourself physically to be whatever you want. In fact, we've heard many times that there's no longer just two genders, not just male and female. There's some kind of other options out there. Now, I realize I'm only 54 years old, but I'm already too old to understand that. I'm already too old to figure that out. But the world, you young folks listen to me, the world would tell you that it's okay to change your, to mutilate yourself physically in order to fit in. Beloved, these children of Israel could have bought into that because this, this would have been a major deal. This was a traumatic event in their lives and their whole world would have been shaken. Their worldview could have been uh, cast down. And notice he also changed their lifestyle. He, he, he gave them this rich diet. And, and boy, how tempting it would have been. These were exiles, remember? And the children of Israel that got exiled, that were taken captive out there, they just had to fend for themselves. There was a bunch of them left behind in Judah. Uh, Jeremiah was one of them. And it was a barren and a wasted land over there. Many starved to death. Oh, how tempting it would be to try to fit in because we get regular meals. We get to live in the luxuries of the palace. Oh, how tempting the lifestyle of Babylon would have been for them. The diet of Babylon. Beloved, the lifestyle and the diet of Babylon is tempting today. But don't you buy into it any more than they did. He tried to change their lifestyle. Then he also, he went so far, the king went so far as to change their names. Change their names. Look at, look at this. Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Those were the Hebrew names of these children. And something about Hebrew that I didn't mention earlier when we talked about them changing their language. So much of Hebrew in, their, in that language had a reference to God and to the true God and to godly things. That's one of the problems also with the language of the world today. You know, I, I think I mentioned uh, recently to someone, I was, I was at a political event several years ago when I was running. And it was up in North Alabama, I believe it was in Cullman. And there was a bunch of folks there, some I knew, some I didn't know, but a man I didn't know walked up to me. And when he walked up to me, he said, uh, hey, I hear you're a preacher. My daddy served such and such church. Brother Buddy, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you don't hear that phrase a lot, except among primitive Baptists. He served the church. He did. And I said, are you primitive Baptist? He said, yes, I am. I said, well, praise God. I could tell just from his speech where he was, where he came from, you see. Now, I'm not, I'm not just pointing that out to primitive Baptists. I'm talking about in general, people will be able to tell from your language, or they ought to be able to tell from your language, whether you're a child of God or not. Because the language of God, the Hebrew language, had so many references to godly things. And notice Daniel's name meant literally, God is my judge. But the king there in Babylon changed his name to Belteshazzar, which meant Bel protect him. Bel was their chief god in Babylon. He took away the very name of God from the name of Daniel. Hananiah in Hebrew means God has favored. And Shadrach, which is what his name was changed to, means the command of Aku. Aku was the moon god of Babylon. He took the name of God away from Hananiah in changing his name to Shadrach. Mishael, Mishael literally means in Hebrew, who is what God is. The name Meshach means who is what Aku is, the moon god again. Azariah means Jehovah has helped. 
And his name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, which was one of the Babylonian gods. He changed their names. He changed their lifestyle. He changed them physically. He did everything he could to assimilate them into their ungodly society. So I guess there's no hope for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego but to become like the Babylonians, right? Well, the answer is no. Because what we find here should be a great encouragement to us today. And that is that we can live faithfully in a foreign land. Because these four children of Israel did it. Notice what they did. You see, in the face of this conspiracy to corrupt them, they had the courage to oppose them. They could have submitted, but instead they had the courage of their convictions. And notice Daniel's the one that steps up here. He's the one that's primarily uh, doing the talking. And, and notice something about this situation. Daniel was intentional in his faith. Look at verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Daniel was intentional in his faith. He purposed in his heart. Child of God, living in exile, you must be intentional in your faith. It doesn't just happen. You can't just drift along and roll with the flow. You have to make up your mind. You have to be intentional in preparing for the temptations of Babylon. And it took courage to do this. It's a whole lot easier to go along and get along. I don't like stirring up controversy. I don't like causing problems. I don't like being the one that speaks up and they say he's a troublemaker. He's just a problem. You got you don't don't get him stirred up. You're going to have uh, problems with him. You know that people don't like to promote you when you do that. People don't like to hire you when you do that. It can affect you in so many ways. But notice here what what Daniel did in verse nine through verse twelve. We read that Daniel spoke up. And he told the chief eunuch there that he didn't want to partake of the food of Babylon because it would, it would defile him. We'll come back to that in a minute, but it would defile him. Now remember, these are new masters. He's, a newly, found, he's newly found himself a slave. Who wouldn't be intimidated by that? But do you remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.7? God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Daniel followed this. Daniel knew, knew that verse before it was ever written down as a verse. And he talks to the king, uh, to the chief eunuch there, and he says, Let us not participate in this food. Let us do something else. Because you see, Daniel was not only intentional in his faith, he had prepared his heart for this moment. He had prepared in his heart. And beloved, I want to say to you, every major conviction that we have is a decision that we need to make well in advance of the time that we are tempted. In the midst of the temptation, it's too late to make a decision. You know, when Joseph was uh, tempted by Potiphar's wife and she got him alone in there in that, in that inner chamber and she began to, uh, uh, to entice him and to tempt him, that's not the time for Joseph to say, okay, hang on just a minute. 
Let me go read the word and let me fall down on my knees and pray and I'll, I'll give you an answer in a minute. No. <laughs> Joseph didn't do that, did he? He got him out of there. That's one reason I think the writer of the Old Testament's a southern guy. He got him out of there. You know, I like that. He said he got him out and he even left his coat behind because <laughs> he had already decided beforehand that he was not going to let that woman tempt him and sin. You notice he didn't say sin against Potiphar. It would have been a offense against Potiphar, but he said, I'm not going to sin against God. Remember this, child of God. When you commit an offense against your brother or sister of whatever nature it is, you may be offending them, but you're sinning against God. See, there's, there's, I don't deserve not to be offended any more than you do. I mean, you know, I don't, sometimes I feel like I shouldn't, well, I didn't deserve that. Well, you, you know, truth is you really did. <laughs> You're a worm of the dust. You don't deserve anything better. But, but, but I don't deserve not to be offended any more than you deserve not to be offended. But the, the, so it's not about me and you. It's about me and you and God, see. The sin is against God. But Daniel was prepared in his heart. And one way he prepared was by knowing the scriptures. You know, remember what it said in verse 8? He said he would not defile himself. He had to know what the scriptures said about what kind of meat to eat in order to not defile himself. If he'd been ignorant of the scriptures, he might have just sat down and said, man, this looks great. <laughs> you know, I'll eat this and that and whatever I want. But he knew what the scriptures said about unclean beasts and unclean food. And he said, I, I know the scriptures and I have conviction based on the scriptures and I'm not going to defile myself. See, you can't go into Babylon unprepared, child of God. There's some preparations that we need to make when we go out in the world. Hey, it's easy right here. It's easy this morning for me to serve the Lord. I don't have any problem standing in the pulpit or mixing and mingling and fellowshipping with you. I feel safe. I feel secure. I'm not being tempted to go curse somebody out right now. <laughs> I'm enjoying this fellowship. I'm not being tempted to cut somebody off in traffic just to show them that I'm a better driver than they are or that they can't do that to me. I'm not being tempted to cheat or steal or to do something uh, wicked out there because I'm in a safe place but the minute I set foot out those doors I need some help I need some help Ephesians chapter 6 tells us about some of that preparation he says first of all in verse 12 we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers the rulers of darkness of this world spiritual wickedness in high places and then he says to take on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand I want to say this be careful about those preachers that that, that speak with great bravado like we're gonna attack hell with a water pistol we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna you know charge the day calling out the devil devil you you know listen the devil's the devil's a whole lot smarter than you are a whole lot wilier than you are and he's a whole lot stronger don't you go tempting the devil the bible doesn't tell us to charge it tells us to stand remember that that's that's really because that's really all we can do the one who could charge did. <laughs> the one who could win the battle did win the battle. We're told to stand, and here's how we're to stand. With our loins girt about with truth. We need to know, you know, truth's important. 
The truth of God's word is important. People out there say today, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe. You know, your truth's good enough for you. My truth's good enough for me. No, the truth is good enough for the truth, okay? Truth is truth. It's not some truth for you and some one, another truth for someone else. Two plus two equals four every time. It never equals five. And the truth of God's word is important. We need to worship him in spirit and in truth. See, the truth will help you. Your loins are girt about with truth, the breastplate of righteousness, good works, doing right, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Beloved, if I didn't have a message, I wouldn't know what to do. But I've got the greatest message of all, you see. You know, think about if you go out there into the world and you get ready to, uh, to, 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 to fight the battles, but you don't really have a message. Beloved, you need to have a message. The message is the good news that Jesus Christ saved his people from their sins. And if you find yourself in the position of, of, of being convicted and of being burdened by your sin, that's evidence that you've been born of the Spirit. That's evidence that you're one of his. Sometimes people accuse us as primitive Baptists and, and believers in the sovereign grace of God said, well, you mean to tell me that there are people out there, somebody out there that wants to go to heaven so bad, but he can't go because he wasn't chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That person doesn't exist. <laughs> there is no such person. If anybody finds himself in the position of loving and, and believing in and trusting the Lord, that's not in order to become a child of God. That's because you've already been uh, born again and you are one of his children. <laughs> a baby doesn't cry to get born. He cries because it's been born, you see. That's good news, isn't it? <laughs> what do I have to do? Well, isn't there something I've got to do? No, Christ did it all. <laughs> he did it all. He took care of it. He died on Calvary for you. There is, he said it is finished, and he didn't say it's almost finished. <laughs> Praise God. He said, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith. Wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, we're told in Hebrews. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In the courtroom of your, your relationship with the Lord, faith is admissible evidence. Faith is the strongest evidence. It's the substance of things hoped for. In other words, I read it, but now you've got to have something to have faith in, right? <laughs> So you need to stay in the Word. Which brings us down to verse 17. It says, take the helmet of salvation, which means we've, just, we've been cloaked in the blood of Christ. He said, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You need this Word. You see, Daniel was prepared in his heart because he had prepared in the Scriptures. He knew what the Bible said about what he ought to do and how he ought to live. He had taken this whole armor that Paul is going to talk about millennia later. And, and yet, Daniel knew what to do. He had, he had courage. And, and notice something else. Daniel was confident in his plan. Daniel was confident in his plan. He knew in his heart the promise of a faithful life. He followed God's way instead of Babylon's way. See, he knew the scriptures, and I just, just quickly, I'm not going to spend much time on it, but back over in the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy, we read about the summary of the blessings if, we're, if, we're, if the children of God would be faithful to God. 
He said, It shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Later on, he talks about the cursings. But over in Deuteronomy chapter 30, something that Daniel would have known about, in verse 1 it says, It shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations whither the Lord thy God had driven thee. Now stop right there. Is that not exactly where Daniel is? Daniel is among a people who have been driven out among the nations. He's no longer at home. He's no longer in Jerusalem. But he says, when you're in that condition, he says, if you shall return unto the Lord thy God and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that then thy Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God has scattered thee. Solomon put it this way in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen: If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. See, Daniel knew that. He knew he could trust God. And back in Daniel chapter 1 here, Daniel in verse 11 said to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, number tw uh, in verse 12, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Pulse just means vegetables. Give us vegetables and water. Vegetables to, and water to eat. He said, I've got an alternative here. And by the way, you need to always have an alternative. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh thee of the hope that lieth within you. Be prepared like Daniel. He said, you let me do it my way. And ultimately, he says, you evaluate us at the end of that time and you tell us then whether we can continue on this or whether we cannot. And the, the, the worry was is that under that way of eating, they would, they would become emaciated. They would waste away. They knew that they could fatten them up with the Babylonian food, but they didn't trust that they could fatten them up with God's food. But guess what? God's food will make you fatter and more fleshed out than any other food the world can offer. Because notice what happened. <laughs> it says at the end of 10 days, verse 15, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than did all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. <laughs> God came through again. Is that surprising? Is that really surprising to us? That should we be shocked that God once again proved that He is God? Because He is the God who proves Himself over and over and over. Daniel had an alternative. He said, my way is not your way. Give me some time to prove it. Beloved, our way should not be the way of the world, and we can prove it. You know, one of the things that happens sometimes is little, little you know, the world is kind of bought into this big megachurch idea of things, uh, that that's the only way it works. And, and, and many times uh, uh, people say, well, don't you have anything there to, to draw people? Don't you have anything to entice people? Don't you have any programs and that? No, we've got the gospel. That's all we've got. That's our pulse, okay? That's our water. That's all we have. But praise God, it's enough. <laughs> Beloved, sometimes we need to remember that the drawing power of the gospel message is all we need. 
We don't need gimmicks. Beloved, if, if preaching, praying, and singing won't draw one, nothing else will. The food of Babylon, the message of Babylon, is not the message of the church of the living God. So let's bring this to a close. So you say, preacher, God came through again. So I guess what happened next is that God uprooted the Babylonians and picked those children of Israel up and set them back down over in Jerusalem and put them back and made all their dreams come true and they lived happily ever after here in this life. You know that's not the case. That's not what happened. As a matter of fact, if you continue reading in chapter 1 there, you're going to read about how God blessed these four children and gave them knowledge and skill and learning and wisdom. And later on, you're going to read about visions and dreams and prophecies. And you're going to read about a den of lions. And you're going to read about a fiery furnace and troubles and struggles in Babylon. And you're going to find out in verse 21, it says, Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. You know how long that was? Seventy years. Seventy years. They never went home. God never brought the fairy tale to bear in this world. And most of the time, God doesn't do that. I'm not saying things don't sometimes work out. And I'm, I'm certainly saying things are always better if you follow him. But if you're following him in order to uh, get what you want in life, you're following him for the wrong reason. That's the prosperity gospel, and we don't preach that here. <laughs> you know, give me $100, you'll get 1000 back. Give me $1,000, you'll get 10000 You know, that's not, if you just have more faith, name it and claim it. That's not, the, that's not the true gospel of the Word of God. The true gospel is this, is that Jesus Christ has overcome this world, and even though we live in this world, we can live a faithful life in the midst of the Babylonian exile that we're in. Daniel stayed all of his life in Babylon. Cyrus came along about 70 years later. That means if Daniel was about 15 years old when this began, he was 85 years old when Cyrus came. And he, by the end of his career, I'm sure he had given up all hope of ever seeing Jerusalem again. And I don't read where he ever saw it. But I'll tell you one thing he did see. He saw the heavenly Jerusalem. At the end of his life, this faithful life that he lived, in, in view of which he had many prophecies about the coming Messiah and about the world system that would rise and fall and ultimately the kingdom that we are living in today, the church kingdom that would overpower all other kingdoms and outlast them all. By the time he got to the end of his life, the only hope he had was heaven. The only hope he had. Now, look, I hope in the next election we turn some things around in this country. But my hope is not placed in the next election. Because there'll be another election two years after that and another one two years after that. And, and it's going to be up and down. And I'm sorry to tell you, but we're living in Babylon and we're going to be for the rest of our lives. In one form or fashion, the Babylon system of this world is going to afflict us. But I'm, I've got good news this morning as we close this out. If you purpose in your heart and you prepare beforehand and you stay in the Word of God, you will have opportunities to stand for God even in exile in Babylon. You remember I mentioned the den of lions, the fiery furnace? 
You know where it all began? Don't neglect the little things. It all began with the little vegetables and water. He said, you know, I'm going to be faithful in these little things. You know where David prepared to be a giant slayer? Yeah, I love being a giant slayer. I've told you that before. I, I love fighting the giant, don't you? I want to be the giant slayer, you know. I want to be known that way. You know where you prepare to fight the giant? It's not on the day of the battle. God didn't require him to start taking sword lessons there at the Valley of Elah there, getting ready to fight Goliath. No, David began to prepare to be a giant slayer on the hillsides of Bethlehem, shepherding those smelly old sheep with no audience and no one to watch. Daniel here, quiet. He, didn't, he didn't organize a protest. He didn't start a revolution. He just went to the man. He said, look, I can't eat this food. Under my religion, I need, I need a religious exemption. I cannot eat this food. He didn't start protesting or causing. He just said, I'm going to quietly serve my God. Later on, you're going to read that when the king said you can only worship one God, Daniel didn't get out and start protesting there. He just kept praying to the God of heaven. And it got him cast into a den of lions. But even in the den of lions, he had sweet fellowship with the Spirit of God. Even in exile in Babylon, we can find success and remain faithful to God by preparing and purposing in our hearts and having the courage of our convictions. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. 